0: Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Mistakes Were Made, a CityWire podcast where we chat to some of the best investors about their worst mistakes, and crucially, hear what they learned from them. I'm Alex Steger, Editor-in-Chief of CityWire USA.
1: And I'm delighted to be back. I'm Frank Talbot, Head of Investment Research at CityWire.
0: And I'm delighted you're back, too, Frank.
1: <laughs> thanks, Alexander. And of
0: course, of course, it's not just you though this time, is it? Or just me? Um, we're joined in our virtual studio for this series um, by Chris Slowly, the editor-in-chief of Citywire Selector. Effectively, like all top elite sports teams, we've dipped our toe in the transfer market and drafted in a star signing from a European superpower. Chris, no pressure, but that's that's the billing we're going that's for. That's a lofty billing. Well, thank you very much. I very much enjoy the podcast and thank you for giving me a chance to be part of it. As also someone who makes a load of mistakes, I'm quite interested to hear how people with much more power and influence also make mistakes, but what they do about it more crucially.
1: Yes, Chris, but that's not the only reason you're here. I think not least among them is to help us in our quest for global domination or at least some global coverage uh as you probably as editor of our european publication spend much time talking to the biggest and best asset managers and fund buyers from across the continent so uh should we expect to hear more from them over the course of the series yeah we should do and
0: um so so i've got it right my stated aim then is global domination that's what we're aiming for with the podcast yeah i think i think so i think that was actually pretty clear in the contract that, that we sent you and your agent so um yeah and if it goes wrong, obviously, that's, that's on Does you. Does that count as a mistake, me not reading that contract? Or should we, uh, should we just pass over that for the time being? Let's move on. I think it counts as a mistake uh, by us. From No, it, it won't be a mistake. It's going to be great. Uh, we're going to have a much wider range of guests than we have done before. Um And yeah, in all seriousness, we are very much looking forward to having you on the podcast. And of course, we're also looking forward to uh, hearing from a brilliant range of investors over the next few weeks. That's right. So we've got Nobel Prize winning economists, one of the few female CEOs in asset management and a reality TV star who also happens to be a respected investor. So, yeah, that's just a few of the people we have lined up. Exactly. And we're going to kick things off this week with one of the leading lights from the world of quant investing. The Godfather of Smart Beta himself, Rob Arnott. Now, for this interview, Frank, it, it was you and I in the uh, in the hot seats, so to speak. Um, thoughts, thoughts on Rob. Thoughts on the mistakes that he spoke about.
1: Yeah, great to get Rob on the podcast. What really came across for me in the interview is just how steadfast he is with the process that they've defined, and that's helped them stick to the long term. They really believe that value is going to pay out long-term. Plus, I really like that he views UK equities as the trade of the decade. It's about time someone did. Yeah, you know, Rob there, clever
0: clever PR there, knowing that a lot of our listeners are going to be in the UK for this. Um, I think I should also mention, just for those people not familiar with Rob or not, who he is, he's the founder and chair of Research Affiliates, uh, which is, a, as I said, a quant investing shop based in Newport Beach, California, uh, they mainly offer reweighted indices, famously the RAFI series of indices, uh, as well as some asset allocation strategies, and I'm sure a lot more besides. That um, famously, over the last decade or so, they've been bulls on the value factor. Which, Frank, you know, let's be honest, it hasn't it hasn't played out, has it? It's been a lonely place. And yet, and yet, from, from speaking to Rob, I think one thing you get is that he's not he's not a he's, he's not a man who, who who doubts himself or his process too much. So without further ado, here is our interview and the mistakes of Rob Arnott. We start this podcast the same way for everyone. We've got, we've got to be fair. So we always kick off by asking our guests about um, their biggest or sort of one of the biggest investment mistakes that they've made o- over their career. And crucially, because this is not about shaming, it's about learning, you know, what they learned from that. Yeah. So, Rob, I'm not over to you.
2: Well, I I could um, say I've never made an investment mistake, but I don't think that would be quite true. I make them daily. Um, There was one time when uh, my largest personal investment was a short volatility bet uh, in the year 2000 and 2001. And when 9-11 hit, I was short about... Oh, 200% of my net worth in volatility and volatility, uh, soared. So when the markets reopened, I'd lost about a third of my net worth. Um, I, um, ramped up the exposure, not down, um, on a presumption that extreme volatility would mean revert and made it all back with room to spare in about six weeks. But the learning there was um, investment management, and um, many people have said this. Uh, Ben Graham was fond of saying it. It's more about managing risks than managing returns. You don't know what returns you're going to earn. You do know what risks you're taking. And uh, so a a major lesson for me was uh, your risk tolerance is never as great as you think it is. Take less risk than you think sounds like you might have aged a bit in that six-week period. <laughs> you know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't because losing a third of my net worth um, overnight was a fraction of what many people lost. Um, I had five friends who died in 9-11. And um, uh, I, I absolutely couldn't feel bad for myself about a financial loss that... Um, uh paled in comparison to the losses of individuals and of the country did you in terms of, of what you learned because you say you did you know you doubled or doubled
0: down and, and made it back within six weeks which again for, for very different reasons to what you just said would i imagine have softened you know li- literally softened the blow of, of the loss but going forwards after that then were you more risk averse or well you- i
2: had my i had my personal investments at about a um 20 to 30% annual volatility, which means that your weekly value at risk would be, oh, something on the order of um, 3 to 4%. And so you get a 10 sigma event and it's 30 or 40%. And um, I realized, no, that exceeds my risk tolerance. So let's aim for 15 to 20 um, annual vol for personal investments. And it was also a lesson I'd already learned for clients. When clients ask me about strategies that we manage, uh, they'll say, how big should my allocation to this strategy be? And uh, they're usually expecting me to say as much as you can um, justify. (laughs) But no, I say um, never, ever invest in any strategy more than your investment committee would tolerate you being wrong." For one to two years, because you never know when a strategy is going to be particularly good or particularly bad. Uh, You do know that there will be periods of time when it's bad, and that that's going to tempt the investment committee to cut and run. Um, That doesn't do them any favors, it doesn't do you and your career any favors. So, never make a bet larger than your investment committee could tolerate for a year or two um, uh, that strategy going horribly wrong. And I think that's Good sensible advice for any investor, including on their own portfolios. There's a, there's a, a really
0: good follow up, which I think Frank's thought. I, I saw in Frank's eyes that he wants to ask about too. But before before we get to it, I want I wanted to just very quickly just go back to that time where you lost that third of your of of, of your personal net worth on this on this very uh, you know, re- relatively aggressive volatility strategy, and your response was. Go big, like keep 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 going, because obviously you the, the ultimate lesson was be less risky, but in the short term you thought no. <laughs> How do well, you? I think that's, that, that, that I think for a lot of investors that'd be difficult to, to get their yeah head it is it is
2: difficult. Um, we didn't our ancestors didn't survive on the African veld by running towards a lion, um, but if you're already tangling with a lion, uh, are you better off? running away when it can run faster or you're better off punching it in the nose. Um, uh, So um, the VIX, best of my recollection, VIX jumped from um, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of um, high teens to about 80%. Um, And my reasoning was, okay, I still have sufficient collateral to maintain this position. I have sufficient collateral to boost it modestly. Um, For me to lose the next third of my net worth, VIX would have to jump to 160. Um, Do I think it's more likely to do that or come tumbling down? And uh, everything in my experience, uh, mean reversion is the most powerful force in investing, uh, was that it it couldn't easily go higher. If it went higher, it would be a little higher and very briefly. And so I, I reasoned that, uh, okay, this is a time for me to, uh, ramp up exposure, which I did and <clears throat> continued to ramp it up, uh, as VIX came down because I had more and more room to do so. And then, um, uh, once I'd gone through that entire round trip, um, I then said, "Okay, now it's time to be less risky and to learn this lesson." Okay, I just
0: I just think it's interesting, isn't it? I think a lot of people, yeah, like you say, punch the line in the nose, but I'm not sure a lot of people necessarily have the the uh, the stomach, perhaps is the right word for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, Frank, I think you were about to jump in on something there before before I took that tangent.
1: Actually, I think it's something slightly unrelated. I was uh, seeing that uh, a quote from you that I read the other day saying that uh, something along the lines of, you've always questioned the status quo and what you've been taught uh, and you attribute much of your success to that. How did you learn that lesson or were you born that way?
2: Oh, I guess I've always had a questioning nature. When I hear something, and this dates back to when I was in college, when I hear something um, announced as true, announced as a fact um my natural instinctive reaction is to say hmm is it really a fact or is it just something that this person believes um uh, maybe it stems from my having been uh, raised as a son of a preacher um but in any event the um uh, the notion of just questioning uh it's interesting um Albert Einstein was asked late in his life um, how he was so innovative. And he said, I have no special advantages, which, of course, is bull. He was incredibly smart. Um, But he said, I have no special advantages except that I am deeply curious. And I think curiosity is um, less common than it should be. Is that do you think there's do you think there's sort of less curiosity in the
0: in the investment industry or you know than perhaps in others? Do you do you think it's a particularly sort
1: of do you think that's you, especially true today as well?
2: Um, no to both questions. I think most industries are incurious. Um, I think some industries are um, far less incurious than others. Uh, I would view um, modern tech as an example of an arena in which um, a lack of curiosity is uh, fairly obvious and is a bad career path. Uh, But in most industries, uh, doing what people have always been doing um, and presuming the status quo will always be status quo can be a very successful path for a career. Uh, It can't be a successful path for an entrepreneur. It can't be a successful path for an innovator, but it can be a successful path for um, a career person who wants a nice, nice, safe trajectory. And uh, I think um, 90% of the population doesn't have a lot of curiosity. Uh, When they hear something from somebody they agree with, uh, they nod their head and say, yeah, that that sounds right. And, (laughs) um, Uh, make snap judgments like that, rather than saying, oh, I like this person. I've agreed with them a lot of times, but um, why don't I think about this? Are they right this time? Do you think... And uh, that tends to go against human nature. Uh, we're social creatures and we like to find agreement. And finding disagreement uh, can be unpleasant, but uh, ultimately in our business can be where the opportunities for profit can be found.
0: So on on that point about sort of, you know, I suppose, sort of fighting human nature and sort of going back to your uh, your previous point about, you know, pu- you know, man running towards a lion and then once you're in the fight with a lion, <laughs> punching them in the nose, you know, are there times when this, uh, and forgive me for uh, sort of, maybe this is too, sort of slightly contrary nature or the ability to sort of double down on a loss. Are there times when that's Backfired on you. I mean, the example you gave us at the beginning of this—you know—it it worked spectacularly well. You made you made back up the the, mm-hmm. the third of your net worth. Are there times when I don't know either, either sort of the the, the, the contrarian nature, the contrarian nature that you, that you might have, or indeed just that ability to double down when um, when down? Uh, has it always worked out?
2: <laughs> Are there times when when it hasn't? It eventually, historically, it eventually has. But there can be long periods of time where it doesn't. So just as a case in point, value has been underperforming growth for, well, it depends how you measure it. If you use classic Fama French price to book, it's been underperforming from uh, early 2007 until mid, uh, until the summer of 2020. That's 13 and a half years. And, uh, yeah, it's had, it's tumbled and then it's had a pop-up and then it's tumbled and then it's had a pop-up and it, it's just been painful and relentless. Um, but what has worked is when it's tumbled and you ramp up your value exposure and then when it rebounds, you take some of that exposure off, um, our work on fundamental index, uh, has underperformed the cap-weighted indexes now for a decade, but has outperformed the value indexes absolutely relentlessly. And uh, since value usually wins, uh, a strategy that beats value when value is losing, but doesn't necessarily beat the market, and beats value when value is winning, thereby beating the market by more than value, in the long run, uh, it works. And so um, it's a long answer to a short question, uh, but really it hinges on, on your time frame. If your timeframe is patient and long-term, um, betting against conventional wisdom tends to work. You just don't wanna make a full-scale bet And that was one of my takeaways from 9-11. You don't want to make a full-scale bet all the time. How did um, Values'
1: uh, elongated dip uh, sit with your investment committee, bearing in mind the the two-year rule that you talked about?
2: Well, um, I don't have an investment committee per se. You are the the investment investment committee. (laughs) And yes, we saw outflows over the last uh, three to five years. Pretty modest. Because we've got most of our clients recognizing that we have a structural value tilt and that if we're beating value, um, that's great. If value is beating growth and we're beating value, um, that's fantastic. But uh, we've got most of our clients conditioned to understand that when value is is, uh, lagging the market by a wide margin, we've got a headwind. And we shouldn't be expected to beat the market in those circumstances. Um, So our outflows were modest, and they've already reversed. We're already seeing material inflows. Um, So uh, a lot of, in the investment management business, communication with your clients is so crucial. If they understand what they bought, and if you stay true to your discipline, Clients will stay the course for a long time, and that's certainly been true. We manage well over twice as much in fundamental index assets today as we did back in 2013, even though values underperformed growth, and Rafi, until last August, underperformed the market. Um, The snapback since then has been wonderful, but uh, even after that snapback, value today is priced at a deep discount, Relative to growth, a deeper discount by some measures than even at the peak of the tech bubble. So the room for a snapback in performance is still to this day absolutely enormous. Are there any times where you ever doubt yourself? The way you,
0: you've done all the work, you've I don't know, yeah, do, you, do you ever lose faith, basically, or, or question yourself or, or sort of be, begin to doubt or begin to think that, you know, maybe things are different this time?
2: The short answer to that is, is um, I doubt myself all the time in the sense that I always view every experience as a learning opportunity. Um, I don't doubt certain core principles. For instance, if an asset is cheap relative to its fundamentals, um it should perform better on a long-term basis. Uh, if a, a strategy is out of favor, there's slightly more likelihood that it'll come back into favor than it will than that it will fall further out of favor. These are lessons that I've learned again and again and again, and that always have seemed to be correct for uh, patient investors. When people say value is dead and gone and won't come back, what they're tacitly saying is that the relative valuation of an asset is no longer a relevant measure for whether it'll perform well. What they're saying is price doesn't matter now or ever again. And that to me strikes me as uh, uh, impossible, impossible to embrace the notion that price doesn't matter. Um, What's the fair value for Tesla? Well, it's not infinity. And it's probably not zero.
0: (laughs) It's it's not infinite. Oh, man, I got the big, big portfolio rethink coming up. Uh.
1: Yeah, we we were going to ask you what you think the biggest mistakes you think people are making out there in the market, but you've already touched on. Well, the mistakes others make is
2: um, uh, fairly straightforward. Um, One of them is impatience. Uh, One of them is we're in the only major business in the global macro economy where people hate a bargain. Imagine if Tiffany's posted a banner sign saying uh, "Post-Covid Sale, Everything Marked Up 20%", and people bash down the doors to get in. Uh, and across the street, Cartier posted a banner sign "Post-Covid Sale, Everything Marked Down 20%", and people shunned the store because something's got to be wrong with the product. Um, well, we're in one of the few major. Um, businesses in the macroeconomy, where that's how customers behave. Buying high and selling low is endemic and is embedded in human nature. Um, why? Well, anything that's a new bargain probably got there by inflicting pain and losses. It just goes against human nature to say, oh, give me more of that, please. And anything that is newly expensive, even extravagantly expensive, likely got there by providing great joy and great profit. And it is extremely painful to take something with great profit and say, okay, I've had enough. Let me drop this. With the way you invest and with
0: with having, you know, the, you know Raffi or the the, the broad indexes. So, so to your point, you do, because you buy everything, you buy both the traps and the bargains and things. Are there times when you're, you know, independent of those strategies, you know, out of curiosity you you spot a stock that you think looks like an absolute uh you know an absolute what do they say in the states a, a dumpster fire i believe is, is a phrase <laughs> that you guys use here um you know and, or one or two or three of those companies and yet but obviously because because of the way your you know your rules-based investing strategies work you you know that you're gonna you know you're gonna take them and and obviously you can't do anything about that you you're not gonna the last thing research affiliates is going to do is start you know, picking stocks within that. So, so I completely right. get, I'm not saying, would you change it? But do you, are there ever moments where you're like, oof, this is, this is going to, you know, when that rebalance happens, you're like, oh, I, don't, I really don't want to be doing this kind of thing. Or, like you know,
1: like case in point with sort of the oil industry decarbonization. Sure. Today, Beautiful example
2: today. And the example of 2009, one of our competitors um, stripped financial services stocks out of their um, Strategy, which was um, uh, an alternative smart beta strategy, they decided subjectively to strip um, uh, financial services out because they felt that um, the current economic footprint of these businesses was a very poor gauge of what the size of the businesses would be in one year, let alone five years. And the rationale. The end of them was it? What's that?
1: And that decision was the end of them, you, these competitors? Oh, no,
2: they're still around. Um, but uh, interesting, we, we had two Rafi clients, uh, one in Europe and one in the U.S., who said, um, we love your strategy. We're staying the course with your strategy. Please do not do this year's rebalance. And they left 700 basis points on the table by doing that. So um, at the time, I mean, one of them asked me, how confident are you that that this rebalance into consumer durables, into financials uh, is going to be profitable? And I said, my subjective view, my gut tells me, um, don't trust this at all. But my knowledge of history tells me mean reversion works. And Mean reversion is at its best when it's least comfortable, and that taking argument persuaded most of our clients, but not two of them. Sorry, frankly, you, you something there? yeah,
1: just 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 taking the emotion out of the decision, yeah, because yeah. you know? yeah, your heart would have said absolutely no chance, but your your head, looking purely at the numbers, says go for it. We you know
0: obviously we always start by asking our guests about the worst investment mistake, but we end or or, or we nearly end um, by giving them the opposite by giving them the the platform for a straight out brag because you know in financial services there's a lot of (laughs) no one's Um, too shy of this so is there an absolute slam dunk of a decision or you know or or, or anything else that you've just got right over your (laughs) over your career that you're like this this was this was the key call or this was just an absolute you know an absolute win
2: well a, a dear friend of mine is harry markowitz and he um has said on a number of occasions, there are only two free lunches in investing. One is mean reversion, long horizon mean reversion, and the other is diversification. Um, If you think asset A is the best and asset B and C are the second and third best, you get a better risk-adjusted return by owning all three, not one. And if something looks fantastic because it soared, Watch out, it may mean revert. I I would take that one step further. The academic finance community, when it's researching investment strategies and factors, never, ever asks the question, is part of the historical backtest performance of this factor or this strategy a consequence of upward revaluation? That is to say, let's take ESG right now. Uh, ESG is very popular, and people are now saying, look at the back test. You can invest according to your principles and profit from it. I have no problem with ESG. I think it's a great strategy, but I have a real problem with marketing it by saying, you can have your cake and eat it too. Now, let's say ESG stocks are trading at um, parity with the market multiple, and then five years later, they're at a 20% premium. Okay, the back test will say you had a 400 basis point annual alpha. The entire 400 basis points is the run 20% run up in relative valuation. Why on earth don't we subtract that out automatically in any academic research on factors, um, any academic research on strategies, and any back test? Um, so uh, one of the things that I am proud of is that all of our research is done with an eye towards sustainability of the alpha. Um, That 20% that I just alluded to, if there's any mean reversion, the plus four becomes a minus four very fast. And this is something that countless PhD quants don't get. And I don't understand that.
0: Franco, Rob are not there with some um, pretty frank um, admissions of you know
1: where things have gone wrong in the past. I'm surprised it's taking you so long to get that pun in there, Alex. This is a Caesar series two, and you're only just making your frank puns. But yeah, I think the thing that stands out for me, it's amazing how many of the guests we have on the show talk about their biggest investment mistake being in options. And almost without fail, it's a lack of understanding of what they're investing in, and crucially, the risks they're exposing themselves to. You know, these are massive cautionary tales for anyone considering day trading. It's so easy to buy an option now, uh, and these uh, investment professionals that are still getting caught out, albeit early in their careers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we should possibly challenge the idea that he didn't understand. Um, but I'm not saying certain... he didn't
1: understand, but the scale of the risk, he was very honest about the fact that he didn't quite comprehend that
0: yeah no absolutely and also look you know just the candor because i'm sure there's people who have come on or may have made big investment mistakes particularly in their personal lives who aren't going to come out and say hey look i lost a third of my net worth because obviously there's some sort of reputational damage there but i like the fact that he did obviously um i think the big point there is that the behavioral the behavioral barrier that a lot of people would have to saying here's a strategy that's just lost me a third of my net worth i'm gonna double down, leg in and go again, uh, confident that I'll make that back. I think that's where um, a lot of people would struggle, right?
1: Yeah, you've got to have conviction. The the investment decision was made for a reason and you've got to have the conviction to, to, to stick with it despite the fact that it all looks like the house is falling down around you.
0: Yeah, very much so. And I think conviction is not something that we can say he lacks. Clearly, you know, as, as we alluded Sorry. to in the introduction, uh, as well, you know, you've got to have a certain amount of conviction if you've, you know, been a value bull over the last decade, right?
1: I think I think the thing that's going to going to stay with me actually is the fact that that point about never make a bet too big that if it goes wrong for a couple of years, you're, you're going to be in a bad position.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's interesting. It's you know not forgetting about risk, right? Not forgetting about the downside um and even you know great investors can uh, upon occasion not 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 realize that and 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 perhaps you know a bloody nose here or there teaches you that lesson pretty quickly right
1: a third of a third of your net worth that's a a sizable bloody nose but yeah absolutely
0: yeah i mean i we didn't ask what his net worth was at the time but i uh, i don't imagine we're talking uh you know pennies here right (laughs) pocket money pocket money chump change as they say do they use that phrase in the uk
1: I don't think so, Alex. Chump
0: change. It's a phrase phrase I use in the US. I've learned it. I I don't use it much myself. I
1: think think, think we're done. I think you need to go to to a wrap up and then we leave. Okay. Well,
0: look, I think we should. uh, Chump change. Keep keep that in. Um, Good. Well, I think that's as good a point as any to to wrap up. So thank you, obviously, to Rob or not for joining us for this. Thank you, you, Frank, for being back in the the virtual studio. It it is a pleasure. A pleasure.
1: Pleasure's all mine.
0: really is naturally Uh, great to have Chris on board and look we've got some uh, great to have you back the listener and we've got some fantastic interviews coming up as as we've hinted at Uh, more names to be revealed soon so stick around and we'll speak to you next week thank you